Recently, I came across a new phrase for my vocabulary and simply stated, self-gifting, as it's called, is the idea that rather than receiving presence, as you would traditionally, you should really treat yourself. So when Christmas or anniversaries or birthdays come around, you need only buy your own presents, wrap your own presents, give your own presents to yourself, and then I suppose look surprised when you open your presents. And it's a graphic illustration, is it not, that one source of satisfaction for many people, one primary pleasure provider, is self. We please ourselves. I also discovered this week that according to the British Retail Consortium, Valentine's Day will be worth around £2.4 billion to retail in Britain. And that by the 14th of February, 13 million cards will have been posted in the UK and £384 million will have been spent on chocolate. And it underlines the fact that many people continue to seek for fulfillment in life within the orbit of human relationships. Imagining that Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright will provide fulfillment and purpose for their lives. But as we move into the second week of our campaign, 40 Days of Purpose, we continue to discover that there is another superior route to satisfaction. Because we're learning that we were made by God and for God. And that therefore our purpose is to be in a relationship with God in which we are satisfied as He is glorified. Now this morning I'd like us to further consider what this means. What it means to live our lives for God's pleasure. Or to put it in its biblical language, what it means to worship God. To please God in all of our lives, in all that we do. So I'd like you to turn with me to the Bible. Once again to John's Gospel in chapter 4, which the children read for us earlier. John chapter 4. And before we read the verses we'll focus on this morning, verses 19 to 26, just a little marker to put in place in our minds. Because the fact that this conversation happens at all is a surprise, really. This lady was a Samaritan. She was part of a racial and religious group with which Jews, like Jesus, didn't normally associate. She was, of course, a woman. And in the culture of Jesus' day, men didn't even greet their own wives in the street. That was the culture. And so this is surprising that Jesus strikes up this conversation. 
And if this wasn't enough, consider too that this lady was a sinner of some notoriety. No doubt why she comes to this well in the heat of the day and alone. So let's mark this in our minds, make a mental note that it's to this woman, to this Samaritan, to this sinner that Jesus gives perhaps the clearest teaching on worship in the whole of the New Testament. And therefore this morning, wherever you are in relation to God, it might be worth listening in. So John chapter 4, verses 19 and following. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and, and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Now I'd like this morning to ask two basic questions about the nature of worship and deal with those two questions in the main body of our sermon. And then in the conclusion, I'd like us to ask two brief questions that emerge from the answers we'll get as we went through the sermon. So first of all, I'd like us to consider the question that Jesus and this lady were discussing for most of this dialogue, namely the question of where to worship, where to worship. Now, it's interesting to note how this question arises in the first place. In verse 16, Jesus has just revealed to this stranger some intimate and accurate details of her prior and present sin. And so presumably shocked by this, and no doubt a little ashamed, in verse 19, she attempts to divert the subject to a more comfortable area. Perhaps this sort of thing's happened to you. Uh, maybe you're a Christian and you've been chatting to someone who's not, and you've got around to talking about God's moral law, about his high, indeed his perfect standards, uh, and our lack of right standing before him, and quicker than a flash, the nearest red herring to hand is introduced into the conversation. You see, it's easier to talk about the theology of suffering in the world than the reality of sin in our own lives and in our own heart. And it seems that this is exactly what happens here. This Samaritan lady, in short form, outlines this contemporary conflict 
that our fathers, verse 20, worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. I don't know if you find it comforting or disturbing that even in the first century they had so-called worship wars. And this particular debate and dispute really occurred on a number of levels. Uh, Firstly and obviously, it was a geographical debate. It involved two places, two vying locations, with Mount Gerizim in Samaria heralded on the one hand, and Jerusalem on the other. And this tension is heightened by the fact that Jesus himself has just come from Jerusalem, uh, a 25-mile or so walk. And that probably Jesus and the lady are now standing within view of Mount Gerizim itself. This was a geographical debate. It was also a historical debate as well. You see, we need to understand that there had been a long and acrimonious relationship between Jews and Samaritans. Otherwise, Jesus could never have told the story of the Good Samaritan, where the surprise of the story was that a Samaritan should help a Jew. And this hostility stems from the fact that Samaritans were historically Jewish originally. They had been part of Israel centuries before. But for a variety of reasons, they had become racially racially and religiously mixed. And all sorts of disputes had emerged between these two groups. There was a historical dimension to this. And of course, at core, it was a theological debate. You see, the crux of the issue really was, who knows God best? Who worships God in the way which most pleases him? Who has the spiritual one-upmanship, so to speak? And of course, such contention still happens today, does it not? Wars are raged on these sorts of lines. And while it's not so common these days, you still hear the question, well, who's right? Which religious group has the theological and historical, and in some cases, geographical high ground? Is it Christians or Jews or Muslims? And even within the Christian fold, there can be strife. Which denomination, uh, which style of gathering and which kind of living is closer to the biblical framework of true worship? Now, maybe you think, well, that's just the problem with many religious people today. It's okay for folks to believe in God, but for them to insist that God should be worshipped in a particular kind of way. Well, see, that's the whole problem. It's outdated. It's unhelpful. And therefore, you can't conceive why people should fight or even disagree over matters of worship. Just let everyone do their own thing. Approach God their own way. And we understand the appeal of that kind of logic. However, if God is personal, I'd like to suggest to you there's a problem with that kind of logic. Problem with that approach. Just suppose for a moment that uh, you introduced yourself to me for the first time after this service. And let's say you tell me your name is Jack, let's say. But I decide for no other reason than preference, than whim, that on the 
next occasions when I bump into you, I'm not going to call you Jack. I'll just call you by some other name, whatever pops in my head at the time. And let's just say that everyone else around the church did the same sort of thing. Nobody called you by the name you wish to be called by. Would you be happy about that as a person? Suppose uh, you come into Charlotte Chapel this morning and you decide that greeting people, saying hello in the conventional style, is just something you don't fancy. No culturally accepted, so you just bypass people. Now, you might believe that acknowledging people is not an important thing. But other people might think you're ignorant. Do you see? God is personal. And it is therefore natural that he is concerned with how he is addressed, with how he is approached. And this therefore means that there will be things in our view of God and in our view of worship that might need to be changed or corrected, readjusted. Now take this Samaritan lady as an example and the Samaritans as a whole. Jesus points out that they have made at least three errors in regard to worship. Number one, they have overestimated the place of worship. See what Jesus says in verse 21. Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. She says, which side of the debate are you on? And he says, wrong debate. She inquires, is it this place or that place? And he replies, it doesn't really matter. Now, if you were not only a Samaritan, but especially if you were a Jew, this would have shocked you to your sandals. Because you would have been wondering, doesn't Jesus know his Bible? Doesn't he know that back in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, God commanded Israel to seek a place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling? Would you not have reminded Jesus that later in the Jewish Testament, God had moreover designated that place to be Jerusalem? And would you not have provided him with a recap and a summary of the extensive instructions God had given to build a tabernacle and later a temple in that same Jerusalem to be the primary habitation of God on earth, the primary locale of worship? And you might say that to Jesus, and Jesus might say back to you that you have misunderstood the period of history. You see, verses 21 and 23 indicate, Jesus indicates, that a new time in relation to worship is at hand. Now, this is a little hard for us to get our heads around this period that Jesus describes. It's not so much a, a fixed time as it is a period of time which begins with the coming of Jesus and will be fully fulfilled at his second coming. It is both not yet, the time is coming, verse 21, and yet it is also already come, verse 23. Just think of a young baby, a young baby still in the womb. Even by the first scan, all the components, all the constituent 
parts are already present. And yet there are long months until the baby grows to the point when its potential is realized and it's born into the world. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom is like that. My rule is like that. It's like a seed which is planted in the ground, which grows to become the greatest tree in all the garden. And this means that there's a new focus in worship. The gravity in terms of worship is shifting. Uh, let me give you an illustration of this. If we turn back to John chapter 2, a couple of chapters before this, and you remember that Jesus is standing by uh, the temple, the physical building in Jerusalem. And in verse 21, he makes this astonishing claim. Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Of course, the people think Jesus is crazy, because they think he's speaking of the physical temple. And it's taken 40 or so years to build the temple. But John has the comment, and mark this closely, that the temple Jesus was speaking of was his body. He was saying that my body, the temple, will be destroyed, but will then rise again in three days from the grave. And this indicates that a different kind of temple worship is now happening. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus is the new temple. And if you want to worship Christianly, you don't come to Jerusalem so much as you come to Jesus. My wife's been to Palestine and done the tour, said it was great, and I would like to go, maybe, sometime. But I don't need to go. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to worship. Christianity is unlike Islam. It is unlike Judaism in its form today. And that since Jesus came, Christian worship has no geographical center. Jesus is the center. And Jesus, of course, is in heaven. And one day, as Peter was reminding us, we will draw near to him in the fullest sense to worship. In that great vision of the future, John in Revelation records, Revelation 21, 22, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, perhaps someone at this point says, well, what about the Jews then? Is God not concerned for Israel? Uh, now that the gospel, as we know, as we travel on in the New Testament, will move from Judea to Samaria and then out to the ends of the earth. Has God now forgotten his people? Well, no, because you notice that Jesus points out that the Samaritans have made a third error. They have underestimated the people of Israel. See, they have overlooked the fact that in terms of knowledge... Israel have known God better than they. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, verse 22. We worship, that is, the Jews worship what we do know. 
You see, the Samaritans, in fact, only accepted the first five books of the Bible, of the Jewish Testament. They didn't accept the, the prophets, the Psalms. And therefore, their view of God was just bits and fragments. They didn't know him like the Jews knew him. And moreover, in salvation terms, they had failed to realize that the Jews are the vehicle that brings salvation to the world. Salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. The New Testament is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies. The New Testament is like the tip of the iceberg, clear and sharp. And yet beneath the surface, the Old Testament provides foundation and trajectory. And we must not forget it. So the where of worship is not the most important thing any longer. Suffice to say that the focus now is upon Jesus Christ. So uh, let's be practical then. How actually do we worship in this new time, in this new age? Now, what is the kind of worship God desires? And we're going to spend a little less time on this point than the last one. Verse 23, the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Twice, in exactly the same words, the phrase comes. Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. The way we worship, that's the answer, is in spirit and in truth. Now, what does that mean? How, how can we unpack that and understand that? Well, let's take them one at a time. What does it mean to say, worship in spirit? How do you worship spiritually, according to Jesus? Well, I think we can say that the spirit in view here is not the Holy Spirit. In other words, I think the NIV is right in not putting a capital S in here. Of course, it's biblically true that the Holy Spirit helps us to live lives of worship. But if it were the Holy Spirit here, we would expect Jesus to put in the definite article, this Spirit, this Spirit. So what does it mean to say simply worship in Spirit? Well, verse 24, I think, helps us. Because it's a parallel phrase when it says that God is Spirit. And I think that means that God in his nature is not essentially material. In other words, God is not bound up with places or locations or objects. God is not a tree deity or a stone god or a mountain deity. He doesn't need to be worshipped in one particular place because he is spirit. That's the heart of God's being, so to speak. And this would make us think then that in verses 23 and 24, spirit is being used to describe the inner unseen being or soulishness of the human heart. In other words, worship in spirit means worship in your heart. Worship from your soul, if you will. Now, this is a challenge for some of us particularly, isn't it? 
And I know in a room of this size and this number of people, there's a wide variety of personalities. And that's a good thing. God made us that way to be diverse. But some of us are mainly thinkers. If this is you, you are mainly a left brain, cerebral type. You like to solve problems. You enjoy good logic and argument. You're a thinker more than you're a, a feeler. And if we put it within a context like this gathering, just one part of our lives of worship, when you sing songs, you tend to focus on the words, don't you? Almost exclusively because you're a truth person. And you sit examining the veracity of everything that is said in the sermon, in the service. You're cogitating it, you're processing it in your mind. That's just your bent. And Jesus says, that's okay, but just beware, you must also worship in your spirit, in your heart. God wants you to engage your whole person in glorifying him so that you love the truth and don't just know the truth. And then to balance the picture, Jesus adds, and in truth. Because there are some types of people in this room, in God's church, and we must be reminded as emotional types that worship cannot happen merely, solely in the heart. It must be guided by the head too. It's not about vibrancy only, it's about veracity. Worshipping in the way you live isn't just about doing activities with a warm, fuzzy feeling deep in your heart. It's about a life motivated and guided by robust, accurate truth about God, which drives you in the way you live. Remember, this was the Samaritan's problem, wasn't it? They were devoted. They climbed all the way up this mountain. Gave their all. But they didn't know God. Their affections were not connected with accuracy. And that is why, in the context of a gathering like this, it is imperative that sermons are not plucked out of thin air. For all their weaknesses, they must be biblically, theologically sound, and you have every right to check the veracity of what is preached. This is why it's crucial that the songs we sing, though we want them to have good, heart-stirring music, need to be also biblically, theologically sound. You probably don't know this, but many, or at least more than a few, aesthetically pleasing, foot-tapping songs pass across Peter's desk, Norman's stand, and never make it into these services. Not because the music isn't good, but because God is not portrayed as he is. And Jesus simply reminds us this morning that our worship to God must be in truth, as well as in spirit. So this is really the simple challenge of this text this morning. May Charlotte Chapel be the kind of people, the kind of church, who give their whole lives to God in spirit and in truth. In the language of Matthew Henry, a people with a fixedness of thought 
and a flame of affection. So, as we come to the end of this sermon, there are maybe a couple of questions that still are arising for us. And I've got two questions I want you to ponder, and these will apply to different sorts of people this morning. And the first question is for Christians. Because maybe arising out of this, you've heard about how you worship, what it means to worship, but maybe you ask, why? Why should I give myself to be a worshiper in the way Jesus describes? And the answer is, because God wants you to. Because God is savingly seeking people like that. Verse 24, these are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. It is God's plan that you live for His pleasure. And that's all we need to know. That's the only incentive required for us. But if you're not a Christian this morning, I think there's another question that still remains outstanding for you. And it is the question of who. You see, even though this lady had, uh, had this most in staggering, instructive conversation about worship, by verse 25, her situation hasn't changed that much. She's still a sinner. She's still guilty before a holy God. And the pattern of worship Jesus has described seems a distant reality to her still. And she sees the fact, note this, that she, sees she needs something more than a sermon and worship. I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus replied, I who speak to you am he. This woman could not embrace the how of worship until she had embraced the who. She needed a saving, cleansing encounter with Jesus Christ himself. And friends, you can do the 40 Days of Purpose course, and I hope you do, but you could do it over and over again for a lifetime, and nothing would change until you met the person of Christ, the one who can make you a fitting and able worshiper. And the wonderful thing was this woman responded to Christ the story doesn't end in verse 26, because we read in verse 39 that she publicly confessed her sin. She told of the one who told her everything she ever did. And we read in verse 40 that through her faith, many others came to faith. So do you know him this morning? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who can reconcile you to God? And if so, are you giving your life in spirit and truth for God's pleasure? Let's pray.